You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 31st of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. We can't properly set up our district offices. We can't get laptops delivered. We can't start doing the work that we were elected here to do. All that takes uh, the green stuff. Yeah, it takes the green stuff and those workers are furloughed. And so so the downside is that we're not able to get to work as much as we want to in the beginning. But the bright side is that it gives us a lot more free time to make trouble. The curious Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez phenomenon. She has certainly annoyed all the right people. Why is she now impressing the wrong ones? My guests James Boys and Florence Biederman will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Venezuela's alternative president becoming increasingly popular outside Venezuela, but is he seen as a legitimate option at home? Europe's plans to work around American sanctions against Iran. And if you have to protect a statue, does that invalidate the reasons for putting it up. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are James Boys, US policy analyst and author most recently of Clinton's War on Terror and Florence Biederman, London Bureau Chief for Asians France Press. Uh, welcome both to the program. And we will start in Venezuela, a country which now has chronic shortages of pretty much everything but presidents, of which it now has twice the standard allotment. Increasing numbers of countries and institutions are withdrawing their recognition of the hapless incumbent, Nicolas Maduro, and transferring it to Juan Guadalupe. Guaido, sorry, I'll get that right eventually, the 35-year-old president of Venezuela's National Assembly. Guaido is now addressed as Mr. President by the United States, Canada, most of Latin America, and as of earlier today, the European Parliament. Several European countries have promised to follow suit if President Maduro does not call fresh elections, and ideally, in this instance, unrigged ones. Um, Florence, is this going to work, this idea of simply ignoring uh, the president that you don't like and deciding to regard someone else as the president. Well, no, that would be maybe a first. What can work certainly is that this pressure which is piling uh, is certainly going to help uh, the Venezuelan opposition. But it, it's a really, I think, tricky situation because um, the US are intervening and even uh, mentioning the possibility of a, a military intervention. I mean, we, we didn't reach this point yet, but I mean... If this pressure will work or not, I mean, it remains to be seen because I have the feeling that the main player in the story also is the Venezuelan army. And uh, as long as it is supporting Maduro, uh, the pressure won't, won't get much results. But James, pressure is clearly the name of the game here. And as I think Florence completely correctly points out, the army are probably are going to be the decision maker here. So is is the strategy here to just continuing to pilot on Maduro to encourage Venezuela's other institutions, the military especially, to do what these other foreign entities are doing and give up on Maduro? 
Yeah, I think so. I think uh, what you're seeing, uh, actually, I was looking at this story and the, and the, the example it reminded me most of actually was, was Egypt most recently, where again, as, as you're rightly pointing out, that you know, everything depends upon which way the army decides to go. And uh, I think that that will be the great tipping point here. If they decide to throw their, their lot in with this, uh, this new, uh, new individual, then quite frankly, uh, the game will be up. But of course, there's also a, a broader issue here, which is that there is also a, almost a cold war war coalition brewing here between those supporting the the current uh, uh, president and uh, the uh, the old west if you will supporting uh, the young challenger so we will have to see how that breaks out but uh, my concern at this point would be most likely this the safety uh, of the uh, of, of the challenger it's all well and good declaring yourself president but that also puts a huge target on your back uh, and we've already seen for example the attorney general of the country uh, trying to prevent him from traveling so that they can start investigations into this individual uh, which I'm sure many people will imagine might be uh, politically spurious. Uh, well, a report coming in actually just as we go to air uh, says that uh, Juan Guaido says that security forces have visited his home uh, looking for his wife. And of course, there is the, the, the case of the, I guess, the previous opposition figurehead, uh, Mr. Lopez, is still under house arrest in Venezuela. Um, if we look at Maduro, however, Florence, and, and this possibly seems like a, a, a question so silly as to verge on the inane at this point, but is there the remotest reason to believe that Nicolas Maduro is actually capable of turning any of this around? I mean, Venezuela is, an, uh, I mean, it's a disaster area by, uh, by any measurements, but when you think of it as a country which literally is sitting on top of the world's biggest, you know, supplies or reserves of crude oil there is there is no reason at all that venezuela is not a rich successful prosperous and happy country yeah this is what's dramatic in it and that's why maybe in the end there can be a a general kind of coalition against maduro of course all all the the people who are suffering like from from hunger from deprivation uh, and also the military i mean the rank and file of the military in the end are also suffering so that's all this accumulation of uh, uh, can make that in the end there, there will be a trend to to a change um, James, uh, Maduro has claimed and is doubtless going to claim further, and I, I paraphrase him not that much, that Juan Guaido is a, a you know, your counter-revolutionary uh, imperialist Yankee running dog and so forth. Is, is that going to still play with any section of Venezuela's uh, increasingly beleaguered population? That is to say, that portion of Venezuela's population that has not as yet given up and gone elsewhere, because th- th- this was what Chavez did as well before Maduro. Anything that went wrong. Uh, It's never our fault. It is always the fault of meddlers from outside. Yeah, and it's very easy to blame the Yankee imperialism, for example. It's not like the Yankee imperialists don't have form (laughs) in this regard. Very, very true. And of course, as long as you have a president in the form of of Donald Trump, who is even more um, of an easy target, quite frankly. Uh, one can see how that will will continue to play. I think the big challenge here, obviously, once you sidestep the small issue of the army and Russia, um, is uh, what the, the people on the street start to see. If they start to see the sanctions coming in and uh, beginning to bite upon them on a day-to-day basis, uh, if you see uh, moves against the opposition, um, as we were rightly talking about, the threat to, uh, to life and liberty and 
the potential house arrest, then it's possible, I think, to see how this could very well lead to a revolution from the streets. And at that point, again, all eyes will turn to the army, I think. Um, Florence, uh, I, I want to look at Juan Guaido's claim uh, on the presidency, and he has declared himself president. Uh, he says it's perfectly constitutional, legit, constitutionally rather legitimate. Uh, Venezuela's constitution, a, a small leather-bound copy of which I did buy from a street vendor in Caracas in 2007, uh, does uh, it does contain the provision that if the presidency is vacant, uh, then the person who is the president of the National Assembly, as he is, um, does step up. And their claim that the presidency is effectively vacant uh, because the last presidential election was a massive and obvious fix. So you know more than me about <laughs> the Venezuelan constitution, I must admit. So you Only are the expert I here, that Andrew. Very small leather no, belt, and I confess that my Spanish is not all it might be. Uh, no, I guess it, it's not what is at stake. You know, like the the, res- the exact respect of the constitution, letter after letter. You, yeah, you can you can decide since uh, the last election, presidential election was not democratic. Then you are not really the president. I mean, maybe there would be many other countries, by the way, where there wouldn't be any more president. But but that's not what. I'd stake. What at stake is this claim of the opposition and how they can manage to uh, finally to to topple peacefully, uh, let's say, but not quite constitutionally, I I suspect, uh, Maduro. Well, there is much more on Venezuela uh, in this weekend's edition of The Foreign Desk, which premieres at midday on Saturday on Monocle 24. Uh, But for the moment, let's move on uh, and look at another country cursed with a regime which regards hostility to the West as a greater priority than the enrichment of its people and which nevertheless enjoys the affection of certain leaders of Her Majesty's opposition. Iran, the Islamic Republic, is presently one of the many matters on which the EU differs with the United States. The US has ditched the deal aimed at circumscribing Tehran's nuclear ambitions, such as they may be, while the EU is keen to maintain it. Accordingly, France, Germany and the UK have established a new financial mechanism called INSTEX, catchy, which will enable them to work around US sanctions. Um, Florence, this spectacle of France, Germany and the United Kingdom cooperating for the greater good, we should enjoy it while it lasts, shouldn't we? Certainly, but the point is that I don't quite understand this system, you know. I mean, it's supposed to go around the sanction, it's supposed to kind of facilitate the uh, a certain level of trade with Iran, but not with oil, but maybe with food. You don't really know, and and uh, and you're not supposed to to have any sanction from the Americans. I mean, it, it's really a very tricky one. I think it looks more like kind of a system to please Tehran and to 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 make them understand that the Europeans are working somehow to keep alive uh, the nuclear dealer from which uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, withdrew. I mean, to, to me, it seems more kind of. At the moment, a kind of an empty shell. Maybe it will be full with something, but I'm not sure it will be full with Iranian oil anyway in the end. Well, the, the good news there, Florence, I think, is, is that if you don't understand, then Donald Trump certainly won't. Um, but, 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 James, is this likely once uh, he grasps that the EU is doing something that he doesn't like? Um, is there a danger that this will just prompt him to greater extremes where Iran is concerned? Donald Trump has clearly decided he doesn't like Iran. Uh, and in fairness, there are good reasons for disliking the regime of Iran, certainly. He has also decided he doesn't like the nuclear deal, which I suspect uh, the answer to that begins and ends at the fact that it was Barack Obama's uh, great foreign policy moment. Um, but is there a danger that in circumventing him like this, Trump might be pushed to more extreme action? It's possible. 
um, especially when you consider the uh, the character who's advising him uh, on the National Security Council, John Bolton, who of course is uh, a long history of hawkish behaviour, especially as long as he doesn't have to do any of the fighting himself. Um, the idea that you do have France, Germany, and Great Britain coming together uh, in this uh, in this movement is, as you uh, rightly point out, something which we should look to. I think uh, as uh, as a, as a sh- short shining moment of bonhomie, effectively on the European continent. But the degree to which it's going to actually demonstrate anything tangible, I think, is going to be problematic because you know it's all very well and good saying, well, we're going to carry on with this, but you know the elephant in the in the room is the fact that the United States is no longer in the room, and of course that has a huge implications. And the risk now, of course, is that uh, by by moving in the sort of like rather uh, baby steps in this direction to try to uh, appease Tehran, as it would no doubt be seen from Washington, is it does theoretically open up U.S. Uh, sorry, U.K., French, and uh, and German uh, companies to U.S. sanctions, which could of course be very problematic. And then the great question there is: is if the United States is already involved in a trade war with China, uh, is that likely to then move to a potential trade war with its European partners? Uh, Florence, are we here witnessing? And you're quite right that this this proposal is is opaque and dubious in many respects but is this basically the eu as i suspect a number of countries and institutions around the world now are proceeding on the assumption that the the clock is running on donald trump he will be out he will be gone by the end of next year uh, if not sooner and they're just trying to prop this up effectively until as the eu see it, sees it um you know normal services resumed in washington this is what you can understand when you look at this deal. Like as I say, yeah, you keep the ball rolling with Tehran. Like uh, we, we want to maintain some kind of links with you. And uh, yeah, um, with a certain expectation on who will be the next president, that, that can be one version, certainly. Let me come in on that if I can. Um, if that's the game, it's a dangerous game. Uh, I think most of us sitting here in this room expected that Donald Trump would lose, quite frankly. I know we had many, many conversations in oh, 2016. I, 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 I thought, and I there was all will be. conversation about Donald Trump's going to drop. I remember I, you and I talking about the idea that he was going to drop out of the race at one point. I thought he would get beaten like a rented drum kit. And, and, I, I, I had money on Hillary Clinton to win in Georgia. <laughs> Goodness me. Uh, <laughs> well, you're, there's an optimistic man in the room. Um, but, 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 now he's in the office, um, it, it becomes, um, it, they, anybody who I think is writing off Donald Trump at this point um, is perhaps making far too early an assumption and I would imagine that governments uh, across the European uh, continent uh, are perhaps uh, hopefully a little bit wiser to machinations in Washington, D.C. Um, nobody had perhaps more vested in him uh, losing than I, having written the Hillary Rising book, but the idea... <laughs> yeah. Back to Doug Horse back. there, didn't Absolutely. you? Absolutely, <laughs> oh yes. Um, but, um, but, but here we are, we have to deal with the political re- reality that we find ourselves in, and at this point, I remind everybody who's listening that the American uh, people have a funny track record of electing each party to two terms on a pretty regular cycle unless the incumbent is primaried. And at the moment, we're seeing individuals such as Jeff Flake, who've sort of uh, shown a bit of leg in that regard, suddenly now coming back and saying, well, actually, you know what? I'm not going to run for the president to challenge Donald Trump. So let's wait and see. Uh, the next six months with Mueller and the sixth, uh, the, dis- the Southern District of New York are going to be very, very telling with regard to the future direction of the US presidency. I mean, Florence, just, just finally on this, is, is, is it possible, and this has been a, a, a theory of about Donald Trump and the effect of his presidency that I I have returned to a few times, that what we might be witnessing here is, once again, um, something basically 
pretty good happening, largely because Donald Trump didn't want it to or tried to stop it, which was a, a renewed spirit of cooperation among European powers and, and the beginnings of an understanding uh, from Europe that it, it, it has to get past this assumption uh, that it has maintained mostly since the end of World War II that ultimately the United States uh, will look after it and will be there to help it out if, if necessary. Is this Europe realising actually we do need to w look after ourselves? Uh, I think they realized that very quickly after Trump came to power um, and uh, on other more, more important topics like uh, European defense amongst them. But for Iran, again, like uh, this deal is, is, is an important, was an important deal for Europe. There was also a lot of economic interest at stake. But it seems like this kind of arrangement between uh, France, the UK and Germany has, again, a very limited effect. I mean, most of big oil companies like, for example, Total, withdrew from Iran. So who is going to uh, make business with Iran through this uh, new system? I mean, probably small or medium-sized company. And I don't see it as really a, a threat to to uh, the American sanction. And I I, I I don't really expect it will have a, a, a huge influence on uh, in Iran. Whatever the reason is, like, uh, the Europeans don't want this deal to be dead. That's why even without the hope that uh, Trump won't be re-elected, they try to maintain what they can and the, this kind of relation with Iran. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Florence Biederman and James Boyce. Coming up next, incoming Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wins some unexpected fans. Mention the name Funkhouse in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhouse on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Florence Biederman and James Boys. And let's look now towards Washington, D.C., still adjusting to the new Congress elected in November. None of the class of 2019 has attracted anything like the attention garnered by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, elected by the reliably Democratic 14th District of New York after unseating rusted-on incumbent Joe Crowley in the primary. Ocasio-Cortez, also known as AOC, has aroused predictable bewildered fury among among American conservatives by being young, female, left-wing and of Puerto Rican heritage. She has also proved deft in responding to attacks by critics who have failed to calculate that a New York City bartender, as she previously was, might be used to dealing with witless heckling from bloviating bores. Her successes are due in no sm small part to her adeptness with the new media they call social. Let's have a quick listen to her rules for success. Rule number one is to be authentic, to be yourself, and don't try to be anyone that you're not. So don't try to talk like a young kid if you're not a young kid. Don't post a meme if you don't know what a meme is. <laughs> that was literally my advice. And I said, don't talk like the founding fathers on Twitter. Um, I, James, I, I incline basically to thinking she's probably a good thing. I mean, it's quite funny listening to American commentators refer to her as if she's some sort of communist when in, in the United Kingdom she'd probably slot somewhere on the centre-right of the Labour Party. But um, is she potentially some vision of a future for the Democrats? Um, it's, it's 
easy to see why I think some in the Democratic Party are looking to her for, with, with great hope. Um, but I think that says more about the current state of the Democratic Party than anything else. Uh, we were saying before we came on air, the dearth of new, young talent coming through in politics, frankly, on either side of the pond, is, is appalling, quite frankly. And if I was a, you know, a, a teenager or something in my early 20s, which I wish I still was, um, then this idea that, you know, who on earth do you look to? Well, at least with this individual, there is someone um, who is a, a, maybe a kindred spirit. I think, how However, we need to get a little bit um, uh, on top of this before we get too carried away. As you rightly pointed out, she comes from a reliably democratic uh, uh, part of the country. Um, uh, she does have an interesting story to tell. Um, but this idea that she's almost positioning herself as the heir apparent to Bernie Sanders in terms of this idea of being a social democrat um, is, is probably not the way to move forward uh, to get mainstream support across the country and to gain uh, a future political role. Where you go as a very, very junior member of the House of Representatives in her situation, I think is difficult to tell. Uh, many people in Europe, I think, think, well, an obvious springboard is to the Senate. Well, the Senate is a very august body. There are only two uh, openings up uh, within New York. They're not opening up anytime soon. So quite frankly, where she goes is anybody's guess. The risk for her, I would have thought, is that she ends up, with all due respect to her, running her mouth off a little bit too far, saying something that becomes problematic, that becomes difficult for her to walk back from. And I think that the opposition would be wise, if you want to view it this way, to basically give her a big microphone and let her keep talking and talking and talking. And at some point, I dare say, she'll say something that will be very problematic for her future. Um, Florence... How do you see that she's managing the balance between... I, I think it's fair to say that far more attention is being paid to her uh, as a personality and as a character uh, as opposed to any of the policies she's attempting to interest people in. Now, how do you think she's managing that balance? Is she actually getting a message across? She She's certainly a, a master of, uh, of uh, social networks. Like She managed really to, to be world-famous... Uh, uh, with the controversy around this uh, this uh, short video where she's dancing on the roof of a school and people try to criticize uh, her because of this and then she managed to revert the situation and to present herself, as she said before, like someone genuine, authentic. So, I mean... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what would be our career, but this phenomenon you see in many countries, like the youngest MP or the youngest congresswoman, etc., you have some spotlight on her, on him for a while. And yes, very often, I mean, uh, they, they don't make a big career, except in certain countries like Austria, for example. Well, but, indeed. But so, I mean, th th this is why I, th I don't even think people should be allowed to vote until they're 49, <laughs> never mind um, <laughs> never mind stand for office. Uh, James, I, I mentioned in the introduction that she has acquired some unlikely fans. Um how surprised are we that uh, Steve Bannon uh, has spoken approvingly of her, if not necessarily uh, her politics? Is, is he therefore perceiving uh, something of a democratic answer to Tea Party populism? I think there's two things here. First of all... Um what they're admiring her in her is not her politics, but the way she's approaching politics and the way she's using social media. So they recognize, I think, a kindred spirit in terms of, you know, someone who is able to use a new medium effectively and do it very effectively. Um, 
Danny's a million miles away from saying they agree with her politically. But uh, just as you saw two years ago, you saw the very strange situation of people who were supporting Bernie Sanders um, in the primaries when they realized that he was not going to be the nominee, turning around saying, well, we'll vote for Donald Trump. And a lot of people thought, well, how on earth can you be on the far left of the Democratic Party on in one moment and then switch to vote for Donald Trump I think it's the pre- next? it's pretty easy if you're a total idiot. Well, yeah. One of the things I often try to explain to some of my students when we look at politics is the idea that people think about the, the political spectrum as a, as a linear line from left to right and the center in the middle. But I often try and say, well, if you imagine that that line actually curving around to make a circle and the further further you go to the left you must flip over to the right and vice versa and i think we've seen examples of that in the past and perhaps uh, uh, we're seeing uh, something of that uh, emerging in the united states very quick final thought on uh, alexandria ocasio-cortez james yep. though she is hilariously still six years away from being eligible to run mm-hmm. um is, is president ocasio-cortez a thing you would put money on at this point no absolutely not Okay, well, depressingly uh, for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez there, we will move along seamlessly on the subject of women who rose from unlikely backgrounds to become polarising political figures. Uh, City grandees in the English town of Grantham are due to vote on erecting a statue to former UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, arguably Grantham's most famous citizen. Claims may be legitimately made for Isaac Newton, it turns out. I didn't know that when I woke up this morning. Uh, The proposed £300,000 monument presents a logistical difficulty, However, local police have recommended it be placed on a high plinth under bright lights, lest vandals be tempted. Um, Florence, there is form for this. There was a statue of Margaret Thatcher at the Guildhall Gallery in 2002, uh, which somebody lopped the head off. Um, Why does she arouse such passions still, do you think? I think it's a homage in a way, you know, like she she, she was divisive, she stayed divisive and uh, there are some trends in the society that still uh, are the same as when, when she was prime minister and who are still uh, still very much alive. And she was polarizing already when she was prime minister. What really impresses me is the, the passion that uh, that still exists around her. It, it is a weird one, James, because it's, it's, it's very easy to imagine how this argument is going to play out on social media and mm-hmm. it doubtless already is people saying... You shouldn't put up a statue of her because I happen to disagree with her politics. Um, should, I mean, the thing is, even if you do, though, it, 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 she was, uh, without any doubt, a transcendent and important figure, wh- whether you would have voted for her or not. Should, therefore, she get the statue and should people who don't like it just concentrate more on building statues of someone they do like? Yeah, I think one of the remarkable elements to this story, uh, buried in it, is the fact that this was originally meant to be going up in London, uh, and that was discovered that that wasn't going to happen, and therefore a new home had to be found for this statue, and um, which is why we're talking about it being in in Grantham. Um, quite frankly, if someone who was, uh, you know, was it, she won three elections, if I'm not mistaken, prime minister for prime eleven minister years. Eleven years um, if that doesn't warrant a statue, irrespective of party, I'm not quite sure what does. And as you rightly point out, those people who disagree with her, fantastic. This is a democracy. Let's build a statue to people who they support. I'm no problem with that whatsoever. But the idea that you cannot put a statue up to Margaret Thatcher in this country without risk of it being defaced um, and joining the long line of statues in this country which have been defaced recently, which is a disgraceful movement, I think, is quite frankly a remarkable state of affairs in this country. Uh, Florence, does it change the meaning? Uh, of a statue, though, if you have to put it up on a big plinth covered, you know, bathed in floodlights, presumably surrounded by fences and wire. Yeah, it says a lot. I mean, the, the statue has a 
James said uh, was supposed to be erected in London, and uh, they knew there would be too many uh, security measures to take to, to to keep it there. I mean, it just means that it reminds me of another statue, which, by the way, you were going to ask us what's our favorite statue. I was <laughs> of Saparmurad uh, Niyazov. I mean, uh, he used to be the the president of Turkmenistan, and he erected this fantastic statue, uh, plated, gold plated. This was the revolving one, right? The revolving one, like that, would revolve so that he can. Uh, faced the sun all around the day and it was standing on a 70 meters high uh, system. So I've, I've, got one, <laughs> I've got one just like it of myself in the garden. So, so I guess uh, the, the state of the democracy of the country is maybe proportional to uh, the height of uh, <laughs> where the statue will stand so that you don't... James, Flor- Florence there is nominating uh, the revolving gold-plated statue of Sapyomat Niyazov. Do, do you have a particular favourite political statue of your own? This is a great local radio question. I oh, like this. It's making me wish... your partridge moment. Exactly. It's really making me wish we had a, a, a phone-in capacity. Yes. Um, we'll be playing Jet next. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, uh, all seriousness, in all seriousness, I think the, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. is, is, is a magnificent m- uh, statue to someone who... And if we're talking about divisive individuals, here's someone who led the United States through the Civil War. If any statue is likely to be attacked by those from the Old South, it's that, and yet it remains untouched, unsullied, uh, and a testament to uh, to the nation and to the uh, the man who led it through the Civil War. Uh, I, I have a soft spot myself, and this is uh, obvious uh, home crowd umpiring from an Australian here. There's a very nice one in Canberra, uh, our, our somnolent national capital, uh, of John Curtin and Ben Chifley, two two great Australian Labor prime ministers of the the 1940s or thereabouts. But it's a it's basically just it's a, a life size statue of ba- of two men in hats walking along the street having a conversation. I quite like it. It's a very sort of human, non grandiose statue, and as, that- about as far as could be imagined, in fact, from them. Revolving the face to face the sun. Okay, in okay. This was the statue I don't like. This okay. was a, but the one I like is uh, the one of uh, Churchill and, and Roosevelt sitting uh, yeah. in London. Uh, I mean, on Bond Street, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and you see many people there sitting. I mean, families taking picture. It's a really, really good one. It is uh, highly recommended to any of our listeners visiting. That I am turning into a local radio disc jockey, <laughs> uh, and I should therefore draw today's clo- today's close to a show. Today's show to a close. Florence Biederman and James Boys, thank you for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Augustin Machalari, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and May Lee Evans. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900, it's The Urbanist. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Music